The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, who is so thrilled to actually be excited about a Wheel of Time book on my Wheel of Time podcast. And I am joined by Greg, who has been excited the whole time and is probably now getting overhyped about the rest of the series because (laughs) of how much I'm talking down these great books. Greg, how are you feeling now that we are in the middle of kind of the great section of this book as far as I'm concerned? This this is good stuff. Uh, you did not lie about that. But as I just confessed, I, you know, after we last recorded last week, I ran upstairs and read right away. And so then I came down here tonight. And I'm like, what did happen in those chapters? So uh, we'll see how I do with that. The the kind of game goes on about when I should read. And, and sometimes it feels like I should read right before we record. And sometimes it feels like right after. So we'll see. I have to say, just as a little bit of probably unnecessary note about our real lives, we are recording early right now because you have another Mm -hmm. podcast to do after this. And I was honestly very sad for you that you couldn't run upstairs and read the next couple (laughs) chapters because that's what I am going to do. I am excited (laughs) at this point. Um, And so I'm so excited. I say we just dive straight in unless you have any other thoughts. Uh, dive in right away. So today in this episode, of course, we are reading chapter 44, Five Will Ride Forth, a little bit of a tongue twister there, and 45, Blade Master, a deceiving title, but more on that later. Indeed. And I think that this first title is also relatively deceiving, as we will talk about after we go through this summary. So we begin in Perrin's POV. He is traveling through a village that he estimates is about half abandoned. And they have been basically following Paddenfane's trail, trying to track down where he has gone. And he is there with Hurin and Matt. They kind of convene. And then they realize that a large number of horses are entering the village. They quickly note that they are white cloaks and begin to flee the village. Uh, They get away without being chased. And at this point, Perrin isn't quite sure whether or not they're being followed. So he reaches out to a number of wolves. He introduces himself as Young Bull and they do a little bit of scouting, tell him they are not being followed. And so Hurin and Matt and Perrin decide to follow the trail further towards the city while trying to avoid the white cloaks. Um, We then switch into Joffram Bornhald's perspective and we join him slightly before the end of the previous chapter because he is seeing Perrin flee. 
He recognizes that it is a blacksmith, but doesn't re remember his name. And then Child Buyer arrives to tell him that the town is secure. Um, Bornhold first sends Buyer off to nail all of the people in town inside of a building so that they don't escape immediately. And he narrates in his head that he just needs a couple of days of silence so that no one catches on to the fact that he is here. Um, Buyer then returns, and Bornhold tells him that in the event that the White Cloaks do enter into battle, Bayer is not going to be fighting with them. He is going to be held back. And he is told that first he needs to report to uh, Joffram Bornhald's son what happened to him. And then second, he is to go to the Lord Captain Commander of the White Cloaks, Jaikim Karadin, and report to him whatever is happening um, on. And in particular, he notes the fact that since there is channeling going on in Falme in battles, to report that the Aes Sedai are no longer keeping themselves out of wars. Um, finally, uh, he basically remembers Perrin's name and says it aloud to Bayer and gets the response that he's a dark friend. If anything is going on with him, we can't trust it. And then um, Bayer basically, I'm sorry, uh, Bornhold sends the entire Legion immediately off rather than resting at all because he is worried that either Perrin or someone else will ruin the surprise that he has planned. Finally, we switch into Rand's POV. He is practicing his sword forms, including a uh, heron waves through the reeds or something like that. Um, and he is told by Ingtar that that isn't a good form to practice because it leaves you open. But Rand both remembers Land's instruction that you could use this form to injure both yourself and someone else. And he also notes that Land said this was a form that was especially good for balance. And so he continues practicing with it. At this point, Perrin, Matt, and um, Perrin return. They report that Fane is in the city, and the group decides that they are going to leave tonight, ride through the night, and arrive at the city at sunrise to try to track down Padden Fane. At this point, Varen says something along the lines of Five Will Ride Forth, the title of the chapter, and starts drawing on the ground as they announce who is going to be going in the group. It is Ingtar and Hurin, because he is the leader and the one following the trail. It is Matt, because he can sense the dagger, and then it is Rand and Perrin because they volunteer first. And at this point, Varen does not allow anyone else to join them, and once again says, five will ride forth. And at this point, the characters leave, heading towards Falme and towards their eventual destiny, with Rand worrying about Varen and what she is going to be doing in his absence. So I actually want to begin this uh, discussion before I even throw to you with a quick reminder about the second half of this chapter title, because we have heard the phrase five will ride forth before. And it was a part of the prophecy that Moraine was learning from one of the other Aes Sedai way back in like chapter 23 or 24. And the line from the prophecy is going to feel a little bit like a spoiler if we hadn't heard it 20 chapters ago. <laughs> Five will ride forth, four will return. Mm. Greg, how does that color this chapter that you completely forgot? <laughs> uh, you know, as you went through that description, I'm like, I forgot a lot and yet not a lot. <laughs> um, uh -huh. You know, we have overused all our metaphors about kind of anticipation and 
this feels very much like a chapter, like these last little adjustments so that yeah. as the, the climax comes to be, everything is now moving in the right direction. Um, listening to your summary of it, it made me think, you know, this really is a moment where we're seeing Perrin as Taviran, right? Yeah. That it is his presence and others seeing him that changes the course of events somewhat dramatically, right? Yeah. And so, whereas the chapter before this, we were hearing about the plan that uh, the women were making and how that was going to come about. Yeah. Now we have, oh, not just the boys are going to come crashing into it, but now an army, a legion of white fo- white cloaks, yeah. white folks, but, but white cloaks. Also that. <laughs> uh, and so all of that kind of crashing down just makes me think, you know, we're in for a lot of chaos uh, in this this last chunk of this book. But uh, to your point about the prophecy, of course, I didn't remember that. I could yeah. tell from the description, you know, and the way he kept repeating it, it had import. Yeah. Uh, one won't come back. I mean, we got a little extra information from the next chapter, um, but yeah. uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm not ready to put a name down. Let's talk about it first. <laughs> Absolutely fair. And I think that I actually want to begin this discussion just with something that I think Robert Jordan does really, really well is I think you were talking about this as being like a transitional chapter or that kind of move the pieces around chapter. I think Robert Jordan is really good at like keeping us in one character's head per chapter for most of the book until it's time to really get the action going. And then we often jump around between characters quite a bit more. And I think one thing Robert Jordan does really, really effectively, and I want to keep track of whether this is true of all of the books because I haven't noticed it before, but in both this book and The Eye of the World, there is kind of one quiet chapter that starts breaking up the perspectives before we get to the really action-heavy sequences. And it kind of, I think, starts getting the reader into that rhythm of breaking it up a little bit more while also giving him the opportunity to move all of the pieces a little bit instead of dedicating a whole chapter to a big change. I think stylistically it works really well, even though it does kind of give us that, like, okay, it's it's a chapter where not a whole lot actually happens, even though we get <laughs> three different POVs. Yeah, and I mean, it's me. So it makes me think a little bit about Star Wars and how um, each of the original three movies adds. So the the first one has one big final battle and the second one cuts between two battles, a duel and a a gunfight. And the third does space, ground and duel. And then you go all the way to Phantom Menace 19 years later and he tries for four battles intercut. And it does feel like that's a little bit of the same effect we're getting here, which is I want to, you know, amp up the excitement by jumping around quicker and and moving everything all at once. And, you know, in some ways it, it breaks his format because it has been mostly, obviously we've tracked before, but mostly single point of view characters. And that would be so limited if we were to go through something like one of these chapters only in one character's head, we wouldn't get it all. And so I think you're right. Starting it just a hair early makes us feel that it's normal and also starts that anticipation up. Things feel like they're faster, more intense, even if not a lot is happening. Yeah, and I think that works really effectively for me in this first section, which I think I probably could have summed up as Heron goes to a village, runs away from white cloaks, talks to some wolves, leaves. 
Like that's pretty much all that happens here. But anytime there is wolf speak, I want to talk about wolf speak, right? Aaron <laughs> is instinctively now referring to himself as young bull. He even seems to be doing it kind of without thinking. We also note that he is kind of mastering the art of kind of trading sense. He's able to introduce himself much more effectively. And we also learn he is a little bit of a legend now. These wolves mm-hmm. have never met him before, but all of them have heard of him. And that to me is what stood out in this section. So what do you have to say either about this kind of last impression of wolves, probably at least so far? Um, and then also um, anything else in this parent section stood out to you at all? Uh, I mean, it's another chosen one, essentially, yeah. right? Like it's another version of this as we we're seeing culture after culture. And, you know, whereas I think before we were wondering how it can all lead to to Rand, it's like, oh, well, as long as it's one of the Taviran boys, then it seems yeah. like that's that's going to be accurate. And I, it's making me more and more certain that the wolves will be changed by their participation in this in some regard, right? That this is... Yeah going to usher in some kind of big, big change or a part of that. And what's interesting is, you know, I know you have a lot of love for Perrin, and I certainly think among the boys, this makes him the coolest in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, but uh, what's interesting about that is what marks him as special in kind of our imagination is what marks him as trouble to the yep. in-universe characters. And so that's that's a really kind of neat pull to play that everything that we're like, he's so cool. I like him so much makes them question him more and more. And, and that's what's going to perhaps be his downfall. Well, and I think that this is a a move that Robert Jordan does really effectively in multiple places, right? Because Rand has exactly the same thing going for him, right? He is the dragon reborn. He can channel. And that is a thing that makes everyone very, very suspicious of him. And so I I think this is something that, that Robert Jordan does really effectively. He kind of gives double edged swords and then watches how the characters react to that. And I find that really fun. It's worth noting, in addition in this chapter to seeing Perrin getting, like, obviously closer to the wolves and learning more about his relationship, we also have Perrin note very briefly that his ears are better. He says that Mm. he can hear things better than he ever has before. So it certainly seems, I think we also had a mention in a previous chapter of him, like, craving red meat. Uh, He is kind of getting a little wolfy, it seems like, and so some new powers may be emerging as a result of that. Yeah, and it's really interesting because in a lot of stories of mythology, I would expect there to be some actual like, you know, like a werewolf, like a bite or yeah. or blood or something involved. And so it's really interesting. It, it kind of goes back to when the boys screamed out the kind of ancient cries from their land. It's like, well, there's something internal here that is awakening more than an external factor converting him is how right. I'm reading that and how and that makes it different and that's good i mean i think robert jordan again finds a way to put a little bit of a spin on a lot of these pitches so that you really are guessing where it's gonna go sports metaphor nailed it look at that look at that first time on the podcast (laughs) i am so proud of you snuck it into season two just barely (laughs) (laughs) uh we then jump into jaw from bornhold's head I find the White Cloaks to just be really interesting villains because every time that you're like, oh, that is a horrible thing, you then get a paragraph that justifies it really well, even if you still don't agree with it. And that's my big takeaway here is I think at least in the first half of this section is it's a really interesting dissection of evil, but not evil. 
what was your takeaway? I, I think there's a lot of things here where I, if I know the plan and you don't, I don't want to highlight the things that <laughs> give away the plan, right? So uh, what was your takeaway from that early section of the chapter? Well, before my masterful sports metaphor, I was actually going to try to, uh, you know, eke in a transition on that idea of the double-edged sword, because yeah. that really feels like another version of this, which is a, a play that I've I've now seen Robert Jordan do a few times, which is to introduce somebody who seems like a pure antagonist negative force, yeah. and then to slowly make you realize, you know, no, they're acting as... Uh, as befits a logic that they hold. And maybe yeah. in the end, you can't agree with that logic, but you can't fault them. And, you know, again, I think you're right that this is a more extreme version. There's still some fault you can find here because yeah. there, there does seem to be some evil choices, but that you really are like, well, he's not out there to, you know, destroy and rule the world. He's trying right. to do right by, I mean, and what makes him more sympathetic than a kid? And, you know, if you think about from his point of view, if the Aes Sedai really had joined forces with the Sean Chan, which is how he yep. misinterprets, but genuinely believes he is seeing, yep. he of course would want to immediately alert all the powers that be and be terrified and sure he needs to take action. So, um, you know, I, I think that is just effectively drawn because I don't like a mustache twirling villain. Like I'm just going to be evil for even, I mean, it's Thanos, right? Like the whole right. Thanos was right. It's like, no, like, you know, it, all that really means is they have a compelling logic and, yeah. you know, right or wrong at the end of the day, it means you can't just totally write them off. And and this to me, I think is one of the, and I'm probably missing steps in between. I can't say that I am an expert on the fantasy of the seventies and eighties, but one of the <laughs> things for me, Robert Jordan is the earliest voice I've seen that takes that like J.R.R. Tolkien, there is great good and there is great evil allegory, and then adds a lot of layers of gray to it. And that's one of the mm -hmm. things that I really appreciate, especially about the White Cloaks is I don't think there is anything like that in the fantasy canon that I have read prior to mm. Robert Jordan. I'm sure it exists elsewhere. And please let us know. I would love to read these books. <laughs> I am happy to get recommendations from our listeners. <laughs> but I really feel like this is something Robert Jordan really nails repeatedly is kind of adding, taking what short, what a lot of earlier writers, especially Tolkien, had done really well in terms of like big, broad, light and dark fantasy and then keep keeping that and adding layers of gray, I think is is also what sets him apart from a lot of the later, more modern stories. Like George R. R. Martin is just a big old pile of gray. Here, mm. at least we have light and dark too. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would lump Star Wars into that discussion yeah. as well too. You know, when George Lucas writes Star Wars in the 70s, it's like, well, kids are so dang confused because the Vietnam War has screwed up any sense of right or wrong. And I want to help them dream of a mythology in which it's light dark and that's all that matters so to have robert jordan come in in the early 90s yeah is, 1990 uh, was i think the first two books this this one may have been early 91 it, and especially if you imagine these I, I don't think it's completely accurate to say they're only for teenagers but you know with teenagers in mind it seems like oh let's talk to the kids who grew up on Star Wars and the Amblin movies of the 80s and have a like way too simplified idea of what morality is and let's really do this. Um, and I just want to point out what comes to mind when you're talking about the White Cloaks in particular is we've been tracking this in their symbols at the beginning of the chapters, right? How it's a yep. mixture of light and dark, whereas we've seen so many others have one color dominate. Sometimes it's unexpected which one, but 
yeah. here it's really the the light and the dark and so i think you know it seems cliche to just say the gray uh, again yeah. and again but but a mixture of light and dark and or some light justifying the dark or some dark ruining the light uh and seems fitting i think my favorite thing about the white cloaks and we see it a little bit in this chapter is that you're listing all of these different kind of like alternative ways of phrasing it and as you're doing so, I'm like, okay, that one really describes Bayer, but that one's better for mm -hmm. Bornhald. And we haven't met that character yet, but that's even better for them, right? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's what Robert Jordan does really well, is he doesn't just give us 50 white cloaks that look the same. He gives us Bayer that seems to be like a zealot who will follow any order because he just believes that the people above him are doing the right thing. And that's very much contrasted against Joff from Bornhald, who is literally violating the orders of his immediate superior right now in order to achieve what he believes is the right and good thing to do. And I think having those layers between different white cloaks in addition to between the white cloaks and what we might think of as like the true villains of the story, I think that works really effectively for me as well. Um, I'm curious, we've now had a couple of encounters with Bayer and Bornhald. Are they beginning to kind of stand out for you as individual characters or is it still like these are among the white cloaks? Because I feel like that's a moment that, it, that differs for different people in terms of how long it takes them to really identify like that's not just a character it's a named character i mean white folks are white folks uh no uh i i think bornhold has because he has such a prominent position in the part of the part of book one mm -hmm. so when he came back around it's like and also let's just be honest a freaking cool name like yeah. i think we talked about it when he first appeared uh a good old jeffram so um i think he has stood out to me more i did not latch as much on to buyer as yes. you just said yeah, um, so until your description, <laughs> yeah, just as a quick reminder, Bayer was actually the one who, when Perrin and Egwene were in chains, he offered them a rock to break their chains, but Perrin wouldn't do it because he thought Bayer would kill them if they did so. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, in our modern day world, I think we're thinking a lot about fascists and how people yeah. react to fascism so to have a, what you're saying these kind of contrasting models of i just follow the orders that come down from above versus i exercise some independent thought and maybe i'm trying to yeah. still meet those same goals but i'm gonna separate myself from them um feels very modern uh unfortunately yeah. i guess is what i have to add there but it, it feels like something we need to all have on our mind as we see these different regimes rise up around the world right now yeah, and I think that the White Cloaks are, A, something that works really well in this series, and I think, as you say, it, it feels ahead of its time, whereas in many ways, I think the Wheel of Time sometimes feels a little dated because it was written in the 90s. Um, I will say, for those of you who have watched the television show, which is about to be Greg at some point, we do get a good bit of the White Cloaks in it. But Jeffrem Barnhold might be a new name for television viewers. Mm. So you have a different analog in that show uh, for those of you who are looking to make links, which we can make very soon. Um, I think it now makes sense to jump over to the Rand section, which I would divide basically into sword practice and reminders about a couple of those things we had in the beginning of the book. And then the second half, which is who is going and Varen five will ride forth, five will ride forth. So let's just begin with sword fighting and things that leave you open and vulnerable to attacks and whatever other reminders we needed from Lan's lessons. How did that hit for you? And um, I guess any thoughts on that first section of the chapter? 
Uh, definitely felt like a reminder. Don't forget, he knows how to sword fight now. Like yeah. you, you built up that skill tree six levels ago. Now, like it's going to come back into play. Um, it's not particularly compelling reading, but yeah. I do think it's necessary because so much has been built up about he has the hair and marked blade. He has the hair and marked blade. Look at him. He has a, and it's like, don't forget, like, yes, he isn't the trained sword master, but he does have some training and he's still practicing. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, hey, he's been practicing off camera the whole time. Don't worry yeah. about it. Like, um, and that'll come into play, I'm sure, in the battle to come. Um, and so, yeah, go for it. I was going to say, I think that Robert Jordan is playing the same game that the Empire Strikes Back failed at. Right. Mm. Is Robert Jordan positioned Rand learning to sword fight between books? So even if it's a relatively short period of time, it feels like a big gap to the reader. Whereas uh, George Lucas multiple times had Luke make a giant leap in his abilities while on screen. And it was supposed to be like three days, according to Han and Leia's timeline. And so yeah. I, I really feel like uh, I think you're right. This is both meant to remind that. He had probably a couple of months of training with maybe the best swordsman in the world, but also he's still a beginner. And I think that balance is an, an interesting one to try to highlight without being too heavy handed with it. Like you said, I think it it it's not the best reading, but it works. Well, and it, it does remind us of this ongoing negotiation between Ingtar and Rand that, yeah. you know, there is every reason in the world why Ingtar should be completely in charge. He's more experienced. He has nobility and so on. And yet as he's been so deferential to Rand and Rand's choices, this little reminder is like, yeah, but he still knows nothing, right? Like yeah. Ingtar still knows a lot more about the fight to come. And that is important. I assume for, for what's going to happen now that, comment of mine inspired yeah. me to think, you know, it might be then the sun setting of Ingtar that we should be anticipating to come. As to quote in the Tyler, one who will not ride forth. Yes. As in the okay. one who will not return to quote Tyler, pause to judge me and move on. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I think then we need to talk, at least I find the most interesting part of this chapter, Varen deciding now is just the time for this prophecy to come true. I am going to make sure only five of them go into the city in the morning. Uh, mm. what, it, what was your take on kind of the way that the group was decided? Because to me, it felt like a very odd rhythm of Varen being like, I will give absolutely no reason. It must be five and everyone just kind of accepting it. How, how did that sequence land for you? Uh, and in your summary, you didn't mention Loyal, but Loyal kind oh, of yeah. gets a bitter rejection too. And, and there's a kind of more practical reason of, hey, we're sneaking around, you don't sneak. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, it was, what stood out most to me in that section is just uh, a reminder that Varen is on Team Moraine. Um, yeah. You know, I think uh, way back in the middle of this book when it was like, all right, Moraine ran off, then... The bad one. Uh his name Leandrin. Leandrin. Yep. And then Varen ran off. It was like, well, who what are what are the sides there or who's doing what potentially here? And I think it's become more and more clear that, you know, as I understand how we literally left it, Varen knows what Moraine is up to and yep. wants to do her part to help, even if Moraine doesn't necessarily understand that Varen knows all that Varen knows. Yep. So I think. You know, if there were any questions here, it felt to me like this was confirmation that 
Varen understands what Moraine understands and is going to also try to bring about the prophecy and yeah. prop up Rand in whatever ways are necessary. Um, and that's not really unexpected, but you could interpret this as she's trying to sabotage him like Leandrin would have in her shoes. And yeah. so I think Robert Jordan signposting like, don't worry, like this, she's on this part of the game um, feels yeah. important. I, I want to add kind of two details that I think add some layers to what you're you're describing, because I think you're spot on in terms of kind of what to be thinking and worrying about. Um, the first thing that I immediately think of as you're talking about this is Varen is very clearly all about um, keeping Rand semi-informed is the way that I am going to describe it. For example, one of the things that she does in this section is she... Oh, mentions, be careful about Damane, because if someone channels in the city, even a man, they will potentially mm. go there. And so it was a very like subtle, how is she communicating with Rand to be afraid of channeling without giving away that Rand can channel and doing it in public. And I think that kind of keeping an eye on how she is trying to subtly get information to Rand or to others without people picking up on it, I think plays into exactly what you're describing. She's doing that Moraine don't give away the game while playing it extremely well. Um, the other thing that I will note is you talked about Moraine kind of knowing Varen is probably on her side and she knows that uh, Varen knows that Rand is the dragon reborn. But it's worth noting if we're thinking about what Varen knows and what she got from Moraine or not, um, the prophecy that she is referencing in this chapter, Five Will Ride Forth, is a prophecy that Moraine unexpectedly learned about after she had left Varen behind. So mm. this is information that Varen had that she did not share with Moraine. So you were thinking about information going one way, but it actually seems like it's only flowing in that direction. So both of those might be kind of interesting notes on top of what you're saying. And a kind of a, a point f scored for the scholar, right? So Varen yeah. is the studious one. So she clearly read this or encountered this information and didn't pass it along. Yeah. Um, which probably wouldn't have caused Moraine's trip, but then Moraine in that little cottage, you know, is there to learn that. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, other than that, I think the last section of this chapter that jumps out to me is Rand's kind of increasing suspicion for Varen, right? Uh, we are at this point, it sounds like you are pretty much in the, like, Varen is now decidedly on team Moraine, we're working for the betterment of the world. I'm still, I think at this point, like, yes, I think she's working for the same goal, but I can't tell if she's Joff from Bornholding it and doing it in her own way or whether she's truly on with Moraine's plan. Um, so what is your thought both on kind of level of suspicion for Varen and also Rand's level of suspicion for Varen? Because I think that as a, as a character is increasingly coming to define the way that he interacts with a lot of things, including, I think, the Dragon Banner in the next chapter sorry Lindsay, ben and others who re listen to this one chapter at a time <laughs> uh i think i would cl classify varen as currently devoted to the prophecy and right. i'm waiting to see if her interpretation of that prophecy exactly matches moraine's okay. so i don't necessarily think that they would be opposed to each other but they may see different ways towards the final battle final confrontation so that could potentially become a mismatch or a, a conflict in some kind of way if they're working towards those different ends. As for Rand, I think 
everything is colored for me by the fact that Rand is just really nervous around all Aes Sedai because he's terrified. And so when you are saying that Varen's kind of hinting like, I know who you are, I think he's just ignoring that. And kind of like, he's kind of like, just like too anxious and worried himself to really appreciate all the meaning and nuance in that. No, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that at some point, I am just trying to get through this chapter and get really excited about every character in it, because this is kind of our last moment to take a breath, right? We get three POVs, we get to check in with everyone. And then for the first time in about a book, I have a giant full page of notes. So I apologize. (laughs) This is the world's longest summary of chapter 45, Blade Master. A lot of stuff happens. So we begin with Nynaeve surveying her army, as she puts it. That is Min and Elaine. They watch a Seldom and a Damane approach. And Nynaeve is basically worried that Elaine and Min's excitement is going to give them away. However, it doesn't. Nynaeve does some sort of channeling with a very small amount of the power and it causes the Adam to detach itself from the Damane. Um, Unlike the last time they tried this, this Damane is not yet fully broken and punches the Seldom in the face and then runs away. Um, The girls then put a bag over the head of the Seldom and drag her into an alley along with the Adam. um, And more or less, no one is saying anything or raising an alarm because everyone is too afraid of the Sean Chan to be the one who gets noticed. Um, so they get into the alley. It becomes apparent that their plan is to basically take a Seldom dress and use it to disguise themselves as being a Seldom and a Demane so they can get in. Um, unfortunately, the dress for the Seldom fits Nynaeve, which means that Elaine is potentially going to be the one wearing the Adam, and she is so afraid that Nynaeve Eve decides to assuage her fears by putting the Adam on the Seldom. Sorry, there's a lot of similar syllables here. <laughs> yeah, you um, got there. They soon realize that unlike what everyone believed, the Adam actually works on women who can be Seldom. Even though it seems that they do not have the ability to channel, they are able to be controlled. And as Nynaeve learns very quickly, they are able to harm people with the Adam, even if they are unable to channel. At least this individual, this can happen. Um, And so at this point, they basically are able to briefly torture and then convince this Seldom named Seda that uh, she basically needs to not be seen or else she will be discovered as someone an Adam works on and she is going to take them dressed as a Damane into what they refer to as the lion's den that is the place where Damane are kept. So we now know the full extent of their plan but then very quickly jump into Bill Domon's head where we learn that he is prepared to leave immediately even if it means tipping off the Shan Chan, he might be leaving. And then we jump into Rand's POV. So Rand is approaching Falme along with the other four. Um, actually, he is not with the other four. They arrive individually and then meet up in an alley. Um, Hurin says that Padden Fane has been walking all around the city, so they're going to need to track down his trail. They leave their horses, and as they do, Rand 
uh, basically recognizes that he has brought his saddlebags, including the banner of the dragon, because he didn't want Varen to be messing with it without him there. And he decides to leave that banner, not to take it with him, but leave it with the horses. Um, the group then begins walking their way through the city. They encounter a Demane, and Rand is worried but isn't noticed. They also encounter Grom, and both Matt and Rand express a lot of kind of surprise at seeing them outside of the mirror realm. Um, at this point, Hurin leads them to a building and says that Paddenfane was there less than a day ago. Um, the building is guarded, and so the group decides to go back into the alleyway where there is a garden and only a single guard. Um, Ingtar goes in quietly, kills the guard, and the rest of them are able to go inside. As they make their way into the building, um, there are some servants, but no one raises an alarm until they get into the main area where Matt says that the dagger is, and inside is both the horn and the dagger. Matt takes both of them, and then Turok arrives. He has four or five soldiers along with a few servants, and he more or less says, we're going to kill you, and has uh, someone go to try to take the horn. Um, he does note, however, that he expected Padden Fane to be the one coming to steal the dagger and the horn. That is why he had a trap laid. Um, but when the person goes to try to take the horn from Matt, Matt stabs him with the dagger from Shadar Lagoth, and he becomes black and swells up and dies. At this point, a battle begins with everyone other than Rand going to fight the soldiers and Rand being left to battle Turok. At first, Rand is afraid that if he enters the void, he will accidentally channel and notify the uh, Damane, um, but he eventually reaches a point where he simply needs to enter the void and begins battling Turok, um, and he actually holds his own for a little bit in the void, but realizes it is not going to last long, and so decides to fight all out. He does so, goes on the attack, Turok slips and is not able to block one of his attacks, and Rand kills him. He is shocked to have killed him, and I think this may actually have been earlier, but I'll jump back a little bit. Oh, well, Rand looks out a window and sees Egwene, and she is in an Adam. Um, then, as they are fleeing, there is an argument between Ingtar and Rand, because Rand would like to stay and try to get Egwene out. Ingtar says there's no possibility of that happening, and it seems like the argument is basically ended by a large number of guards charging into the room, so Rand has no choice but to flee, but he declares to himself that he is going to get Egwene out no matter how it happens and that probably skipped a few things but is most of what happened in this giant very long chapter Greg I need to take a drink of water because that was a lot say something uh all right everyone and that's tonight's episode we'll see you next time <laughs> no, uh, uh a very long good summary and what's interesting is it you know on first blush i would say this feels very much like one of those so much plot happens that there's yeah. not a lot left to interpret i think you've done the the lion's share of the work on this chapter where we can pick up on some of these but um you know, I said a, a deceptive title at the beginning. I I will say my primary reaction to this is I just I thought Blade Master meant we were going to see Rand kick some butt, and we did. But yeah. the real surprise was that Turok is also the master of a Heron blade, and seems to have had to do much, much more to earn that yeah. blade on the other side. And so there's some fun dialogue of like, well, let's see what you are like to to earn that on this side. Um, yeah. So a reminder that there's a shared culture here as different as the Sean Chan have been presented in kind of 
temperament and creatures and you know on and on and on Uh, i think the interesting for me interesting thing for me about this chapter title actually is the fact that it is assigned to the first half of the chapter because i think you're Mm -hmm. right the surprise the twist on the chapter is that the titular blade master may not be rand it's turok but i also think there's something very interesting to the fact that I'm honestly more interested by the first half of this chapter than I am the second, right? The mm. min nineive Elaine let's break Egwene out of jail is much more compelling to me, both because I feel like the stakes are higher and also just because I think it feels a little bit more like a caper than an adventure story. And that's maybe just what I prefer. I love me a good heist. Um, so I'm curious whether you think Blade Master could be applied to Nynaeve and her mastery Hmm. of the situation? Or are we just like, we needed to add something to the beginning to put the pieces in place for that story, and then we get to the (laughs) section that is Blade Master? I mean, so much of our discussion of swords in this book um, has revolved around metaphors of dance. And it seems like she is herself doing a delicate dance here. Mm -hmm. I, of course, was distracted because they were doing the Chewbacca into the detention block corridor plan uh, initially, uh, Chewbacca as prisoner. uh, But then it was striking to me in the middle of that, that she changed the steps of the dance and decided this is too brutal. I can't put Elaine in this collar even for a moment. Um, and makes a different plan with the Saldam and gets a few revelations there. Um, so I I see the I see the point. I don't know if I'm ready to say Blade Master, but I'm I'm yeah. ready to say somebody who's nimble on their feet. You know, almost like uh, the Game of Thrones Blade Master who is training Arya. I don't remember that character's name, uh, but Sirio uh, Pharrell. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like that kind of sword master, um, which is maybe how I should be picturing Rand. But Rand feels more like dumb, brutish wild swings than like needle like rapier dancing yeah the thing i always have to remind myself is that the heron marked blade is a katana so i think it lives somewhere in between those Mm. two extremes uh which is probably the most interesting place to put it if you're trying to build a story like robert jordan wants to is Um, is it a katana on the on the show even uh, yes, it is. Uh, it is Very not always in the art on the covers of the books, but in the show, yes, mm. it is an Eastern style sword. Huh. Interesting. Um, I can't wait to watch that show coming soon to this podcast. Yeah. Get ready for me to introduce it as a watch along weekly. That's going to be real weird. <laughs> uh, I think one of the most interesting things for me in this early section of the chapter is Nynaeve is now actually channeling pretty regularly, which is not a thing that we saw in previous chapters but she is achieving it not by having mastered the picture yourself as a bud opening to the sun technique. Instead, she is channeling by being in touch with her anger. And every Mm -hmm. time that she needs to, Egwene being imprisoned and enslaved is a pretty good motivation for that anger. So I'm curious your thoughts on kind of what I'm seeing as a little bit of a new Nynaeve. She uh, still has the same kind of like lock on her ability to channel but she's figured out a really clever way to get around it at this point well and as i recall when there were those training scenes uh at the the white tower or Mm -hmm. in the camp on the way to the white tower it was her anger where something really combustive happened sure combustible uh happened uh and so it seems to me that this is oh no not another powder keg uh metaphor uh something (laughs) else that is 
going to explode, but Oppenheimer's going to come out soon. Let's go with that. (laughs) Uh, I'm playing a video game that will shall remain nameless, but you can dabble in a little dark side stuff. uh, And it feels like, oh, this is this is going to lead bad places. It might expedite the goals that they're trying to achieve in this particular moment, but it feels like something where there will be a later cost that will have to be paid in response. Yeah, and I feel like we, as both devoted Star Wars fans, will just always hear something being done out of anger and just start listing Mm. Yoda words until we get to the dark side. (laughs) So uh, the other thing I think for me here that is really interesting is we get this great um, kind of naive character moment, but I actually find this to be a really wonderful Elaine chapter, starting with her after they have knocked out a Seldam just not even being willing to carry the Adam all the way into the alley. She makes it like out of sight and throws it the rest of the distance. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, if any, on kind of Elaine as a character? I'm just literally going to start this chapter with like, let's talk about the character moments because that's what I got. <laughs> um, You know, I'm still having trouble marking Elaine. I, like I know she's here and I know who she is and all those things, but yeah. I feel like we still... It feels like she got promoted into the main group and we just haven't learned enough to make it feel like she's actually. So I don't know. Does that make her like the Neville who's sometimes in the main group of kids and sometimes not? And you're like, you know, you care about Neville. And you're like, wait, did I? And you spend like three books not caring about Neville. And then he comes back and you're like, oh, I love Neville. And you're like, wait, do I? So it feels a little like that. Like, you know, what comes to mind is just how obsessed she was with kind of Rand in a like, I want to marry him way. But like, the fact that she's royalty is in the mix there and all these things, it just means there's a lot more kind of about her station than there is about her personality. I think. Yeah. I think we did get, this is jumping a little bit ahead in the chapter, but we do get kind of one fun glimpse into Elaine's personality in this chapter. Um, after they uh, like knock the Seldom out and drag her into the alley and like the plan is mostly going off without a hitch, but they're about to get to the dangerous part. Um, Elaine says something, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, probably uh, Gowan will eat his heart out when he hears about this, but she mm-hmm. said it in a forced way. And I feel like that is just a really great character moment of like wanting to show up her brother and wanting to feel like she loves adventure, but being so nervous, she's kind of lying to herself about it that's Mm. as good as we've gotten for elaine as you say otherwise she's a princess who likes rand um any last thoughts on that and or how lucky the girls were that when they unleashed a damane it was one who would just punch a saldam in the face (laughs) a little deus ex adame or something like that uh but a convenient uh contrivance but at the same time you know i think my main takeaway here is just the Adame is so, so powerful. And Adam. Adam, sorry. No, the good. Adam is so, so powerful, and the rules are really not settled yet because the characters had one impression. It seems to not follow those rules, but we're not entirely sure what rules it is following. And all that is um, an interesting mix, a compelling mix, even yeah. though it's a thing that you know represents slavery and these awful, awful things, and you just want to see it kind of not exist anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, confuses me but compels me (laughs) yeah and so my next note is a big star that just says how does it work because Mm. the story we have been told so far if i'm going to list off like facts we have about the adam and who it can affect and who it can't in shanchan they test young girls every year 
and they put the Adam on all of them who can channel. Hmm. Only some people can be Saldam, and they are selected and then allowed to hold the Adam. Uh, and finally, those should be the only people who can do either of those two things. And so I think it is both shocking that Nynaeve can use an Adam and shocking even more so that Seda can be affected by the Adam. And yet, I, I think when you blow up the only two rules you know about a device, what you're left with is something, as you say, that you have absolutely no rules for. So yeah. I, I guess I'm asking both for your you know, patented, probably right, but possibly horribly wrong prediction, and also, just like any thoughts on kind of the, the dilemma that this creates, both for potentially Sean Chan and, as we see later, Nynaeve. Uh, I'm going to swing wildly on these predictions and say, while this felt like adding some new mysteries to this, it also kind of felt like putting it away. Like, yeah. I think now we have a pretty clear way to spring Egwene. And so I don't think there's going to be kind of all the mystery and craziness about how are we going to break her out. And so it felt to me, I, this is a larger, more global prediction. I think we're going to get out of Falme in this book and we're going to leave the Sean Chan for later to solve. And so this felt like, okay, I'm giving you a taste of some more about the Adam. And we'll see later um, how much you remember when it comes back around. Yeah. Uh, I have very little else to add in this section. I think in part because it is just really well done, like first half of a heist, right? If this was one yeah. of the last two chapters in a mystery novel that was 300 pages long, I'd be in. Like, I want to read the end of this. Um, so then we get Baildomon, who is ready to leave. End of section. I, Do you have anything yeah. else? I actually, when you started talking about him, I'm like, did I forget to take notes? And I did find one sentence where I wrote, Doman watches and waits. But yeah. I usually like separate the POVs with little asterisks. I totally didn't on that. So it didn't stand yeah. out much. You know, an important reminder that he is in place. If you had suspected that he was going to double cross them or something, nope, yeah. he's ready to go. He's going to do his part. Remember that he's there. You know, uh, is it Wayne's World that has the joke about the guys who are like, we carry the pane of glass back and forth across this street yeah. all day long. And Wayne says, like, I think I'll remember that. And it's like, I don't know what that accent was for Wayne. It was almost <laughs> Austin Powers, I think. But um, but it felt like one of those, like some little detail that you just have to remember for when the action, when when it starts to hit the fan. So. Yeah, I, I think my only note that I really had about this is I was just surprised that wasn't a mini POV in the previous chapter, which was all about getting mm -hmm. everyone in place. And I guess I understand they needed to kind of show that the plan starts before announcing the plan will start. But mm. yeah, it, it felt a little out of place and just rushed to me. It was like four paragraphs in the middle of a chapter. Well, and to grab your heist metaphor, you know, when you're doing the heist, there's always the person waiting in the car. And this is there's right. a guy out in the car. Like, yeah, you, don't you, worry about it. You need a really good joke if you're going to actually cut to the guy in the car in the middle of the heist. Is all <laughs> I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, so then we get into the Rand section. They have a plan. They are in the city. My first big note is Rand and the banner. He has decided to bring it into Fall May, and obviously he leaves it aside. It's still at the horses, but I think when Robert Jordan puts that big of a pin on an object and where it is, we've got to at least think about like what is going on here. And then obviously tied up in this is Rand's reason for it. He is so distrustful of Aaron, he does not want to leave her alone with a piece of cloth. 
Yeah, I, I that's it falls into this category I have when reading this chapter where it feels like a lot of people are not acting completely as themselves. And it felt, you know, the easiest Robert Jordan explanation would just be Taviran, right? Like they're not making conscious choices. They are being manipulated by the forces that be so that they're there. Um, but there were times in this chapter where Ingtar felt like he was not acting totally as himself. He was yeah. kind of under the sway of other forces and um, you know, Matt has Matt has the dagger, which right. just naturally becomes that same thing. And in this case, you know, do I think the banner is controlling Rand? No, but I think forces are making sure that he keeps the banner with him so he has it at a key moment. Yeah. Um, and it, that needs to be signposted that he has it, as you just said, so that Robert Jordan's reminding us he has this might come in handy later. Yeah, no, and I think that really just works well if we're thinking about how Taviran works, is I think I always default to Taviran swirl the world around them, but it's worth noting just as much Taviran are tugged and pulled by the pattern as they are the ones shaping it. So I think this is a really good example of that and, you know, a really kind of interesting, you know, note. Uh, that being said, the next section of this book, I think, is really well written in terms of the tension as they are slowly winding their way through the city, trying to find where Fane was most recently. But in terms of like big notes, I've got they see a Demane, they see a Grom, and Fane has been wandering around the city a whole lot. Um, was there anything that stood out to you as like interesting or exciting among what I thought of as like kind of the the well done window dressing, but just like necessary window dressing? Yeah, I think we just need to make sure that the boys are caught up with what the women know, since the women have boys. It's interesting that we called them. I called them the boys and then the women. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it fits. It fits. Even Ingtar is acting kind of boyish in this yeah. one. Um, so I think it's just making sure. Yeah, don't worry about it. They they understand this. I like this kind of added mystery of, oh, we thought the Grom were fake. I mean, they're catching up with the readers at this point, right? right. We thought the Grom were in the other dimension or the other their pathway and they're here and so there's there's ripples for that boy i wish there was a giant multiverse movie burning up the box office right now to help us think about those things yet another giant multiverse movie as the case wow and and there's gonna be one more next week which apparently is just complete and utter garbage compared to the one that came out this week so sure (laughs) uh so anyway so uh all of that is just reminders that you know um the boys are now caught up on that yeah and um you know i think we all know they're headed towards the house. So we just need to make sure they they figure out their own way there. So Yeah. And I think for me, then the next interesting part is something you've referenced a couple of times is what is going on with Ingtar? Because mm. we had a good two, three chapters of him being obsessed with Barthanis and making sure that they went back and got the information from Barthanis and they weren't going to take the portal stone. It was Barthanis. And now the same thing is happening with Padden Fane. He, he needs to be reminded in this chapter that the dagger and the horn are probably in the same place before he is willing to not chase after Fane. And so I think you're right to say he's exhibiting some very odd behavior and he just seems unhinged was the word that I wanted to use to describe Mm. it. Like he, he feels like he is getting fixated on particular plans and ideas and not thinking things through fully. Um, I'm curious both, is that the same impression that you had? And also, what are you thinking about where Ingtar is at at this point? Because he seems kind of all over the map to me in terms of what his plans are and how he's reacting to information. 
completely agree. And I would say I found myself trying to remind myself um, that he is not the same as the boys, right? Like you yeah. got to recall, he's not one of these naive shepherds. He's been around the block and been around a lot of evil forces. So I was thinking more about his home culture and how mm -hmm. they had, you know, they're a war people, right? So they yeah. have fought a lot of demons and you know, I think that makes him much more damaged in certain ways than these yeah. other characters. And so when you were just referring to, you know, matters of honor and so on, he is a man who clearly grew up with sides. There's us and there's yeah. them. And when somebody proves to be a them, he takes that really seriously, more so than the boys. And mm -hmm. I think the boys can easily kind of forget a slight in favor of a larger goal, whereas he seems stuck on, no, 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 I have to, you know, complete my honor in some ways. Yeah. I guess, and in some ways that makes him feel like an older kind of hero, right? Mm -hmm. Um, these guys are Romans and he's a Greek. I don't know if that works right or something like that, sure. but like, but like they are uh, more sophisticated and nuanced in their thinking and their tactical skills. Whereas he's like a creature of chivalry and honor. So yeah. that would actually be more like medieval to Renaissance or something. Who knows? We'll just stop with the real world history and talk about more fantasy books. I I'm going to believe anything you say about any <laughs> era prior to like 1920. So yes, those are great <laughs> examples that you just gave a hundred percent. Um, I now suggest we skip about like seven pages of real book because it is just like they go over the, the thing. Ingtar kills a guy. They see some servants. They're sneaking around. They're following clues. And then they see Egwene. And I think the fact that Rand is the only one who sees her plays really well in this section. And otherwise, I think it really just kind of amps up Rand's desperation in a really believable way. Um did you anticipate this event coming at all? And did you have the same reaction I did of just like, oh, cool. They, they're finally intersecting. Uh, was there anything else that jumped out to you? Uh, I was actually surprised that Rand wasn't more like shocked. I mean, okay, he was yeah. a little, it's not zero, but I would say he was like at a four and I'd be like, you should be at a 10. Like you yeah. left her with the most powerful sorcerers in the world to go to their magic school. And now she's on the complete other side of the continent seemingly just by magic i mean that's essentially, yes and and like and yet he's like oh no like shoot my girl i gotta go yeah it's 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 exactly forrest gump and jenny it's like oh yep. jenny's here too uh of course she is <laughs> like i'll uh gotta get i gotta save jenny uh so uh it feels interesting to me and and i i would say expected though i mean once yeah. everybody got on this peninsula it's like oh okay we're headed towards everybody all together where did they'll all end up together exactly i think right. it's still up for grabs but um i to me it's like yeah we need all these layers to start crashing into each other to build this last five chapters i guess at this point yeah isn't it weird that we are down to five chapters i am so thrilled for all of you to get to read the next section of this book let me tell you <laughs> uh i think then we are in turok has set a trap and that trap was for Padden Fane. And I think that is a mm. really effective twist that both puts a barrier in our character's way and explains why their super secret stealthy mission still results in them having, you know, a bunch of people waiting for them. Um, did that twist work for you the way it did for me? And did you have any other thoughts on this kind of like surprisingly simple caper is how I kind of thought of a good four or five pages of this book? No, I think it was well done. And I was on the edge of my seat, like, you know, trying to see what's going to happen and how are they going to sneak in and all this. 
And um, then it just continued to feed into this thinking of like, oh, well, the Sean Chan are definitely not on the same side as Pat and Fane. And there's a lot of suspicion there. And whatever larger forces are manipulating all this are not working in concert uh, with each other. And, And I think that's a lesson we've been hit with a few times, but a good reminder that, you know, when we're thinking about us versus them, the thems are not all united and they want to fight each other a lot too. Um, you know, what Pat and Fane's motivation would be to steal those items that he brought here. I think that is a little curious in my mind uh-huh. where he is also seems like something that is an important question for the coming chapters. Yep. Um, but the fact that it's um, Turok and then the quick revelation that Turok is a blade master all worked really well for me yeah. um, and really drew me in. Um, I don't know that I have that much to say about their duel, but it was a nice little kind of, you know, a little bit of quipping, a little bit of uh stabby stabby and yep. uh, worked really well to, to kind of push, uh, push Rand to make choices that seemed momentous. Yeah, and I have kind of two big notes about the duel. The first is Rand and his fear of the void, because I think that his worry about channeling works really well as kind of a reason for him to lose initially and then win later, which is what you need in every good duel, but an excuse for it to happen is rare that it works really well. Um, Mm -hmm. The other kind of quick note I have here is that once Rand starts, once he does enter the void, uh, he immediately begins recognizing all of the forms that both he and Turok are using and describing them as, you know, like the, the metaphor phrase that you would use and I as a young person reading it always found that really effective because I have a hard time picturing what like a parry or a whatever looks like but the kind of feeling of boar rushes down the hill I I can Mm. get that right the poetry works and now that I have you know aged 20 years since I started reading these books um, I now have a wife who does Tai Chi sword And they actually have forms that have names like this. And so this Mm -hmm. chapter really rang true to me, but in a different way than it always had in the past. So I'm curious both about your thoughts on kind of like the stylistic way of describing the battle, and then also anything you have about kind of like Rand's hesitance to enter the void, whether that kind of like worked for you as a dilemma or not. I'm just still staggering over that sick burn you just laid out to your 14-year-old self. Take that, Tyler. <laughs> I get a wife later. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah. Uh, surprise, buddy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I you know, I do not have a wife who practices Tai Chi, but the, it definitely felt like a Kung Fu movie, right? Like I'm doing storming crane to counter your praying mantis or, you know, those are probably not the real words. Um, but it felt very Eastern influenced, which was your, your key point there besides, you know, sticking it to your 14 year old self. Um, and, you know, I it's maybe it's a flaw in me, especially in books. I tend to just kind of skim the action. And what matters to me is when it's like, and there's the blow that kills one of the two dudes and yeah. ends the duel. Um, because I, I do think it's hard to capture kind of the grace and beauty of a sword fight on there. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason sword fights have been such a part of plays and film and, and television yeah. even at this point. But it's like, yeah, it's, they're, they're not great in books usually. Yeah, that's... accurate. Um, And then Rand kills the first person he's ever killed. And I think that is the moment, as you say, once that happens, now we get into a character moment, which is much more interesting from my perspective. So 
this chapter I find ends exceptionally quickly, right? It's Herak mm. dies, Rand reacts for about two paragraphs, argues about whether or not to go after Egwene, doesn't go after Egwene. Um, I think that those moments for me work very well, but I could very easily see them feeling rushed after kind of a, a pretty long extended section that is like it's kind of tense to break into an empty house and then we fought and someone died, right? It's it's a lot of long description of action and then a quick wrap up. Um, I guess my big question is, did it work for you? And then what stood out to you in that section? I mean, it totally worked for me. And really, only a couple idiots would force themselves to wait a week before reading the next chapter. Is It, it seems like the real goal here is like, this is compelling. Just keep reading. And it's like, I got to hit pause and break the chapter here. I got to switch and move some of the other pieces around, I'm sure. Um, I anticipate, you know, I like that Rand had the the thought not to leave Egwene, but then chose to leave her behind. To me, that means they'll probably come crashing together in the next chapter anyway, but having made that choice will remain significant in some way, right? Like yeah. that either to him personally, he'll remember the time. He, he's like, remember when I just left my girl <laughs> in slavery? Uh, but, uh, or perhaps the hesitation there, the not going immediately means they missed the opportunity. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm still not convinced we get Egwene out of this situation. It seems to me a much stronger cliffhanger is everybody else gets on the boat and they're like, oh crap, we forgot Egwene. Um, and Egwene goes to the other continent. Now, I'm not saying that's what I want to see happening, but if you're talking to me about a good cliffhanger with some real stakes to make you rush to your what's what's a 90s your local b dalton your local walden books uh and, and these are massachusetts book chains from the <laughs> 90s, uh, uh to buy your book i i mean it's a little early for borders maybe out in michigan you had borders by the early we, 90s we had shulers that's where i was always shopping yeah. Uh, um, so I think you would leave Egwene in danger would make me yeah. rush out to buy the next book faster than everybody's on a boat. We'll see the Sean Chan next next book. <laughs> and uh, with all of that, I think we reached the end of the chapter. I am very satisfied. And there is one extremely important moment that we have not mentioned yet that needs to come up on this podcast. Matt Cawthon dropped the Horn of Valir. <laughs> They're running away. <laughs> he just drops it. And it's amazing. <laughs> Thoughts on that perfect moment? Uh, as I he dropped it and picked it up, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he yeah. just drops oh, okay. it yeah, and yeah. like dings it a little bit and then grabs it. But it's a wonderful moment. Yeah, we bonded uh, again. This is a little after the fact, but earlier this year when the Dungeons and Dragons movie came out, there's this great moment they used in the trailer, which is like a character being handed the most special, wonderful thing in the world, and he hands it to the guy with the bag of holding. Yeah. Um, which is so perfect because they never say he has a bag of holding. You can just tell from the way the characters, and it very much felt like that. It's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, this is the most important thing in the world, and yet it doesn't matter to you because yeah. you're there. <laughs> I think the thing that is wonderful to me is what party in the history of Dungeons and Dragons would give Matt Cawthon the bag of holding, <laughs> right? Like this is the worst yeah. human being to give the most powerful magic item they have received so far. Uh, and with that, just 
excellent bit of, I think, Robert Jordan kind of making us laugh after a fairly tense chapter. It is time for two chapters next week that should get you excited to immediately run upstairs and read two chapters unless you're silly like Greg and have booked yourself on another podcast. <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking next week about chapter 46 to come out of the ch shadow and chapter 47, the grave is no bar to my call. And Greg, I am going to let you tell us how excited you are about those episodes and also if you want shamelessly plug the other podcasts that you will be recording <laughs> uh i mean two again two just thrilling chapter titles i will i'm gonna give the the prize to the second one to come out of the shadow i'm gonna go in ahead and say that's a matt thing like he's he's solving the dagger uh, but the grave is no bar to my call. My head, when I wrote that down on my page to prepare for next week's notes, I was like, someone's blowing the horn. Uh, so yep. we'll see if that's right or wrong uh, as the time comes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in the middle of a four podcast week. So uh, not only can you hear me here on Through the Glass Columns, uh, last night I did a live break of trading cards for the Rebel Base Card podcast, which I have never done before and feel like all my son's favorite YouTubers opening blind boxes on the internet. Uh, I'm about to appear tonight on the Nostalgia Cast talking about the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I see what you're doing, Paramount and Disney. That's not the title. The title is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and then later this week, I'm recording something about Across the Spider-Verse for the Long Take podcast. So all of those are great podcasts where I infrequently appear. So if people are looking for more Greg content with the impending hiatus, you've got plenty of options there for whatever nerdy calling uh, you have. So, But if nothing else, abandon all those, come back for the pure stuff, the stuff I saved just for Tyler, and we'll see you next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.